What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. The kids on Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? Halloween's a Freddy Krueger podcast. Was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. From the Consequence Podcast Network, the minds behind the Losers Club comes a new podcast in fantasy terror. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Halloweenies, a Freddy Krueger podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Hey to all you pod people out there, I'm your engineer, Adam Kivel, and this is This Must Be The Gig, your backstage pass to the world of live music. Every week we bring you a fascinating conversation from the heart of the performance scene, and that could mean a musician, a festival founder, a choreographer, a comedian, an actor, uh, really anyone obsessed with music and performance the way we are. Your host, Lear Phillips, is on the road this week, so I'm going to be giving you the intro this week just by myself. Before we get to our conversation for this episode, we've got everyone's favorite new feature here at TMBTG Studios. It's the live show of the week, where we highlight one of the most heart-thumping events out there and share it with all of you. Hopefully you can get out there and get to this gig. Uh, For this week's live show of the week, we're looking at Hart and Joan Jett teaming up at the legendary Hollywood Bowl on Monday, September 9th. That is a uh, jam-packed night if I've ever heard one. I love both of those acts. I, you know, I've been a big Heart fan ever since I first got my mom's records when I was a teenager. So, uh, you know, I'm very jealous of this one. Hollywood Bowl is one of those world-famous venues that I have yet to attend but would really love to in the future. Hint, hint, if anyone at Hollywood Bowl is hearing this. The best place to 
get in on the excitement of that show or any other is to head over to StubHub via cos.lv StubHub to find the best selection of tickets to the hottest shows, including Hart and Joan Jett at Hollywood Bowl. That's cos.lv StubHub. Uh, one more little bit of business before we move on to this week's interview. I want to urge you to head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to podcasts like this one and leave us a five-star review. Subscribe, rate, review. It's all so important. It's essential for us to keep bringing you exciting new episodes like this one. So thanks for everyone that's done it. But really, you absolutely have to do it. It's a law. I didn't make the rules. That's just the way it is. You have to go do it. Five stars, please. Thank you. Let's return the attention to this week's incredible chat. After playing in a variety of bands as a teenager in London, Alexis Taylor met Joe Goddard at Elliott School in Putney. The two shared an interest in fusing electronic rhythms, synths, and punk energy with a quirky sense of humor, eventually resulting in the formation of the now-beloved group Hot Chip in the year 2000. The title of their debut album, Coming On Strong, set a clear forecast for the band. The group quickly earned rave reviews for their off-kilter yet imminently groovable records and passionate live performances, leading to highlights including a 2009 Grammy nomination for the unstoppable Ready for the Floor. Most recently, the now nearly 20-year-old act released A Bathful of Ecstasy this June via legendary indie label Domino, and we've got a quick taste of that before we get to our interview, so stick through that. But in this chat, you'll hear Lior and Alexis discuss the origins of Hot Chip, their shared love of Devo, the tragic loss of producer Philippe Zadar, Working uh, with Katy Perry and the appeal of Kanye West's Bound 2. That's quite the range of topics, so let us not be delayed. This is Lior and Alexis. Enjoy! Have you left space for me in this life? Because there are voices. Into which we cannot dream In this life i 
your schedule? It's very crazy. Um, well, it's not really crazy. It's quite predictable. Lots of shows in a row. Mm. It's not surprising. It's not crazy, but it's busy. <laughs> yeah, it's very busy. Um, today, I'm not on tour, but tomorrow I'm in the Netherlands. And then Saturday, I'm in Belgium. Sunday, I come home. And then Monday, I go to America for a month. Oh and then after that, it carries on lots of touring. Yeah. Japan, UK tour, European tour, South American tour. Yeah, so there's a lot. How, a how, lot much, ahead. how yeah. much of that are you able to monitor? Like how much of the planning and things like that to make sure that you can get home and spend some time at home as well and not just be on the road for a long time? How much you know, involvement do you have there? Um, we we have a lot of involvement. I mean, we we get asked whether we're happy to do the the touring. Um <laughs> yes. it's all proposed to us. It's not it's not just a kind of uh you know God, we're not, gotta go out and tour again. We're not yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not we're not kidnapped yeah. of course. But, um but but yeah at the same time yeah, it's difficult. It's a bit difficult, but I, I'm trying to focus on the positive side of it, which is we get to tour and play these shows mm. and travel, and you know, I, I I will be missing my family, um, but when they can, they come out to join us, and oh, uh, when we need, you know, but it's a bit tricky. Like the American tour, that that's not possible because of school, um, but you know, that's just something that we're. We put the record out, and we want to we want to play some shows. We want people to hear us playing it live. We want to, you know, kind of make the most of the fact that people seem to be interested in this record and what we're doing on the whole. Um, so it would be crazy to not tour. Yeah, um, yeah. That's my honest answer. You know, I, I love touring, but I also love being with my family and being in London. Mm. So I just have to make it work. Both both those things. Yeah. I think that there's always such a, there's that duality because obviously when you're in it, it's like that instant gratification of being so close and that visceral feeling of having your fans, you know, reacting to your music. But then I can imagine you get a similar satisfaction or even better when you're home and also able to write and able to do other things. So yeah. What is that one thing then that connects you to your cre creativity when you're at home? Because obviously it's kind of an easy portal to get to when you're on stage because you can feel, you can hear, you can touch. Uh, hopefully you can't, you know, taste much of it. Well, maybe from sweat. But you know what I mean? Like, how do you get that then when you're home? Well, in some ways, it's easier to be more creative at home. You know, when you're on tour, you're not necessarily creating. You're you're performing you're performing something that you've created already of course you're creating some new experience a new version of the songs you're playing every night and i think that you are doing something really special by by doing that as long as you're all enjoying doing it and you know happy making music and feeling creative but you can be you can be just as creative at home because you have time to think and feel things and uh, you're, you may be inspired by being with loved ones, family, friends, other things going on in your life other than being, you know, right. in a bus or in a dressing room. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's quite a lot that's more inspiring and creative about 
being in other places as well or being being on a break from from touring can also be you know a place where you really get your head around what it is you're trying to do creatively yeah does that make sense absolutely i feel like we so i spoke to you a few years ago many many years ago about um one of your solo records i don't know i don't know what year it was Obviously, we touched on a lot of the album, but also just your your finding that collaborative value with your band members and knowing that even if you are touring and or writing your solo music, you still feel that creative pull from your band, which I think after so many years is something you can't really overlook anymore. You know, that is a definitely a special... Um, connection that you've been able to forge so how have you kept that yes i to- totally going? agree yeah how do you manage to keep it in a in such a way that it's constantly refreshing to you as opposed to something that you're going to like this same slog you know how do you make sure that the band uh collaboration and that the music that you're making and that that whole experience is as positive as possible. Okay, well, what I think is really important is um, everybody in the band has their own life experiences, obviously. Um, and so each time you're working on something together, everybody is able to bring something new. I mean, I don't mean that every single day in the studio it's like always easy to make music. Sometimes maybe it's harder than other days, depending on people's creativity or mood or whatever. But on the whole, the fact that it's a group of people means everyone's experiencing something slightly different all the time. And then they bring those experiences and how they affect what they would like to do musically to the table. And also, they're not just blank canvases each of us in the band you know they're really creative people and and there's a bond as friends between each of us too and there's things that joe will do for example musically that i couldn't do and things that i would do that he couldn't do and that owen would do that is different from how Al would do it and what felix can bring you know everyone is basically kind of aiming towards something that will work together mm. but offering their own input and creativity based on what what they've experienced and how they're feeling and how we're all feeling and it, i think if you if you stop enjoying music and you're not inspired to make music and you're not inspired by other people's records or anything or art around you or what's happening in the world or things in your relationship, it may lead to it being a struggle. But I think that we're lucky that everyone wants to keep going mm. and keep making records. But also we're, we are genuinely exploring new things that interest each of us as individuals and that overlap with each other. So if one person, I don't know, is like really enjoying a particular 
type of music or sound or production or rhythm that 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 inspiration that they have it's it's um it's infectious you know you 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 get excited to work with them on what they bring to the table and i think if it's just one songwriter one producer and a series of session musicians then maybe that that dynamic is quite different but with hot chip it's two principal songwriters me and joe and and everybody else also making really big contributions to what we're doing and just sort of feeling feeling vaguely similar about what what they want to do musically i don't know if that's really a, an interesting answer but that's <laughs> that's the kind of reality of it yeah um, i'm not really uh, yeah that makes sense i think the fact that we that we like each other is pretty important yes, you know i exactly. think the fact that we respect that we respect that we respect each other and are kind of in awe to some extent of what each person is ca capable of doing creatively that's pretty essential to the to the thing working and i feel really lucky that when i met joe owen al and felix each of them like it's just really really good at what they're doing and we don't spend all of our time just like in disagreements we do have disagreements but there's enough of a common ground and excitement about making records that it keeps going and also this time around we deliberately chose to put ourselves in a slightly new situation work with two different producers on the album right we'd never worked really with any producers before Now we were working with two. They were both unfamiliar to us. Both of them brought very different things to the group. I think that injected some new life. But also we did loads of hard work before we even met those producers and basically made the foundations for all of the songs before we met them. So we didn't just rely on that, but that was that was a useful thing to do mm. in terms of having the opinion and guidance of of these two producers Roddy and Philippe and I think making music and being in the room with other human beings is you know it's it's, a, it's an opportunity to to feel a connection with with those people and to talk about music and to make music and to make decisions together and and it's you know that I've always found that quite exciting about collaborating in the past when I've worked with about group when we first all got together as a band, that, that was all about collaboration and working with producers like these two, Philippe Zadar and Rodé McDonald, you know, that involved letting those people in and allowing them to help guide what we do. And that probably, that's probably another important factor in helping the band make seven albums rather than stopping after four or something. Yeah. You know? we, 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 we're, we're, look, we're looking for something new. We're looking... To, for a way to express something that me, is meaningful to us and meaningful to other people, but find a new way in which to say that. And I'm not saying that we like, we're iconoclastic and breaking the mold every time <laughs> we do anything, but, right. we, but we're trying to, to mm. you know? Absolutely. And you feel that progression, you know, that connection between, um, you know, why makes sense and this album. I feel like it's a natural. It's a natural progression, even though there's been years apart, years between them. Um, and I must say, I'm so sorry to hear about Philippe um, and what happened. I, yeah. I can only imagine yeah, it's awful. Yeah. just having to reflect on that months afterwards as well. Every time I can imagine that's quite difficult. So I, I suppose 
what is the one thing that really makes you smile when you think of working with him and the experience of of having him work with you in the studio and on the album? If it had to be just one thing, then it would be seeing him bouncing in the studio yeah. whilst whilst we were like creating some of the music. So he would he would become very animated and kind of physically demonstrative about how much he was enjoying the music and he would also be in, you know he'd come into the control into the live room and sort of listen to what we were doing in that room but be so excited by it that he's shouting to the other room to the control room yeah. to make sure that Antoine is is pressing record and yeah. we're not missing anything and, you know and then and then he would be like guiding each of us like by clapping and clapping and sort of supporting what we were doing, like the melodies we were playing and the way that five of us were playing things that were sort of locking in together. He would just, he would let you know if that was working and he would, he would never stop you in the middle of the flow if it wasn't working, but I think it was working most of the time. So yeah, he was just, it was his physical embodiment of, of pleasure and music and how it affected him. That's that's the kind of one thing that I would say. That's wonderful. But also he was he was also very good at just being on mixing the music and when he would do the mixing he would be dancing whilst mixing, you know. So he wasn't like a kind of quiet, subdued person who was lost in his thoughts. He was quite you, you could read the fact that he was enjoying it. Right. And it reminded me of Lee Perry. Not that I've ever been in the room with Lee Perry, but it reminded me of like footage of Lee Perry mixing on a mixing desk yeah. whilst dancing and like feeling the vibe of the music. And um, that that was really lovely to, to experience. I also enjoyed just talking to him about records and Prince records and... Um, all of his different funny experiences. He was very amusing, you know, he was quite a kind of jovial person. So there, there was lots of different stuff that we could all talk about and, and enjoy with him. Um, and uh, yeah, it was obviously really, firstly, it was really shocking and strange yeah. to hear. He died, I think, the day that our album, maybe it was the day before our oh album gosh. came out, or, the, or maybe it was the, I think it was the day that it came out and the day that his own, Cassius album came out so I woke up in the morning we were about to play the, the, the like London show that was the kind of record release party and, and the first messages I got on my phone in the morning were about this awful accident and him having died so it was yeah it's very very weird to be working with him so closely and Absolutely. I was texting him about a week before before that but not to focus on it too much, but you know, the the very nicest thing is that at least the music contains some of his spirit Absolutely. in all all of all of the records that, that he's worked on. So, you know, you can hear them and be reminded of him and think of him and feel him exactly. in the, the mood of, of it and, and, and the memories of just being in the room making that yeah. music with him. So that's that's the you know that's important absolutely and thank you for sharing because i think that everybody was just as shocked but i can't even imagine because you were so close and the timing of it all and 
uh, you know, there's just, it's so heavy. And uh, I just think, uh, yeah. yeah, I just think that remembering those little things are so wonderful. And, it, and you clearly enjoy having that close relationship with the people that you're working with. Um, so when did you first realize that you were an artist? What was that moment? Or first think of yourself in that way. When I was at school, um, I I was in a band. I think I think I kind of formed the band, um, but we didn't have any vocals, and we were just playing at lunchtime, practicing in the music room. And um, when I transitioned from just being a keyboard player in this band to writing a song, I think that was the beginning of feeling much more connected to something I knew I wanted to do but hadn't been able to do, which was to write and create music rather than just cover right. other people's music. So that was a kind of inkling of something. But then I remember there was one song I wrote and I played it at the piano on my own, not with a band, um, at school. And it got a nice reaction from people you know, friends of mine and and family and, uh, you know, parents and different people that were there. And it probably wasn't very good, but it was, it was a sort of, it was actually like a completely written song that I performed in front of people. And I didn't really feel nervous about doing it. I felt quite like this is what, this is how I feel and it's coming out in music. And that was quite a nice moment of recognition that, it just felt natural and felt good to be doing that rather than, well, maybe I'm interested in music, right. but I'm more of a behind-the-scenes <laughs> person or something. Yes, you know what I mean? absolutely. Like the, the act of getting up there on your own, performing. And I, I, that has really stayed with me. So even though at the beginning of Hot Chip's career, there was quite a lot of focus on our sense of irony and our humour and poking fun at things and people not knowing whether to take it seriously and always talking about us as nerds and things. Yes. There was also a real emotional backbone to the music and the words, and there was this thing that I cared a lot about. Maybe I said it to you when we talked before, I don't know, but I really cared about the words being kind of direct and emotionally frank. Absolutely. And, um, and the people that I liked in music and in writing like Raymond Carver or Bill Callahan, as he's now known, but Smog, as he was then. And, you know, they had that in their music or in their short stories, a kind of, or Willie Nelson's lyrics as well. Something where what I was striving for was a position you can put yourself in where you're kind of bearing all emotionally and you don't, you don't do that to make people feel uncomfortable and you don't feel uncomfortable about it yourself. It's kind of that's the that's the mode that you want to yeah. work in, and that, that and and that that is something that obviously now that we've been doing it for a long time, people are a bit more familiar with the different things going on in the hot chip, and they don't just say, oh, it's like, is it is it for real or is yes. it just ironic or yeah, you know, they can kind of tell that that we that we've. I mean, obviously, there's still humour sometimes, but. Do you know what I mean? That, 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 I just, um, the only reason I mention any of that is because I think that early performance, which may have been quite earnest, does kind of 
that that thread runs through since then. Yeah, I feel like that definitely comes across. I think, um, especially just listening to your music before it, it being able to experience you live, which happened to me. I feel like there's you. You've written some of the most beautiful lyrics of of the decade. Like I feel like there's things in you know uh, your first albums that you know like take it in. There's su- such beautiful lyrics in that song, and even just uh, you know I mentioned why it makes sense earlier. That's that was kind of weirdly a heavier themed album than what people might have expected just listening to the to the melody and going into now with a bath full of of ecstasy there's there's a lot of themes and things that you tackle as you said in quite a frank way that allows for people to yeah. ask questions without feeling really heavy and bogged down by the, the intellect you know you you can tap into it quite yeah. easily well at least for me it's so accessible that it's like a nice thought as opposed to, oh, must I feel like this now? You know, <laughs> there's no pressure. There's never been any pressure in your music, which is what I think your fans appreciate. Yeah. I don't know if any of that makes sense. There's no there's yeah. no pressure. Yeah. Yeah, no, that does. Yeah. I I think that it's quite hard to, to explain exactly how and why you arrive at right. a particular way of, expressing yourself but when you were talking just then about the lyrics in why makes sense maybe touching on heavier themes and then it not feeling too kind of tricky to understand that um or to get that from it it just made me think of all kinds of music i like but the beach boys and brian wilson came to mind first of all that that you know people can find a way to say something in a song which is quite deep and uh, affecting, but in a way that is really accessible and can draw the listener in. The listener might not even be paying attention to it the first time they hear it, but the melody in a Beach Boys song, like In Your Room or something like that by the Beach Boys, is, you know, it's, it's an introspective song. Um, that is very kind of beautiful and, and, and powerful and speaks to lots of people but comes from one person's mind and is catchy, melodic, easy on the ear whilst being sophisticated musically and yeah. harmonically and, and emotionally but naive and sort of direct enough to capture what it is like for a teenager or a young person to be experiencing exactly loneliness or you know solitude or, and i think i think you know that if those things go in deep for you as a listener then you're inspired by them and you kind of you don't try and copy but you you maybe want to do something that makes you feel some similar when you make your own music and i suppose that is like one of the places hot chip is coming from is from that kind of taking what you experience and feel deep inside and then like putting that across in music. Looking at a calendar full of great events but struggling to find tickets? StubHub's got you. 
Whatever your favorite band, team, or venue, StubHub is here to save the day with the best tickets for any budget. Whether you're looking for a seat at a Broadway show, tickets to the summer's big arena tour, or a night of cheering on your hometown team, StubHub has the seats you're looking for at the price you want to pay. Head to StubHub.com or their user-friendly app to find tickets that are 100% guaranteed by Fan Protect. StubHub's never sold out with the most shows, the most tickets, and the most fans. That's StubHub.com or the StubHub app. The best tickets to the best experiences in music, sports, and theater. Not worrying about how's this going to work or is it going to be too personal or you're just sort of accepting that that's, that's, where, you, that's where you feel comfortable And of course, it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. And some people don't get anything out of it. And some people get something different out of it, you know, but that's, that's the kind of, that's one of the things going on. I think that Joe, because Joe's not doing this interview and it's me, I can't speak for him, but he feels similarly to me. But I also think he sometimes wants to write words that touch on new ground for him and maybe you know maybe they maybe they don't always need to be a kind of relationship or love song or emotionally heartfelt thing they might i think a lot of them are but he might also like when he wrote the lyrics to i feel better the verses of that and i I just wrote the choruses to that and he wrote the verses like he was writing from a place of talking a bit more about humanity and destruction, violence that people have towards, as a race, we're a violent race, you know, he talks about that. And he, you know, he's not really just sticking with the subject matter that may have been there earlier on exactly. in, in the material. So I think, I think there's, you know, different things occupy your mind and thoughts and, and, and kind of trouble you or interest you. And that, that's what comes out in the music I think yeah absolutely and you I feel like there's that moment when you have when you play the Bruce Springsteen LCD sound system cover is kind of I think one of the most heart dumping moments I feel I've ever had at a concert I I feel I was I I saw you at uh, Iceland Airwaves uh, in 2015 I think it was and you're playing that weird I don't know if it was like a old hall or something. It was a strange venue, yeah. very far away from yeah, yeah. Uh, the center of Reykjavik. And I'd been photographing yeah. the show and stopped and actually hopped over the barricade to get to the front. <laughs> so instead of like going yeah. and waiting at the back, I was really rude and asked the fans if they could make some space and they did, which was amazing. But I swear to God, that barricade oh, it yeah. felt like it was going to collapse because people were losing their... I, I've, I've never felt... I, I definitely was lifted up off the ground. Like everyone else's bodies were <laughs> lifting me up um, during that performance. Yeah. I think it was just so moving and life-changing. And I feel like, as you mentioned, even doing a cover, you chose something that really was quite aspirational and that I find a lot of your music, the questions that you ask in the lyrics, you and Joe, uh, it feels kind of hopeful sometimes in a way. And then you have this crazy light show and all these costumes. And so do you still get 
like where did the inspiration come to to have the performance be as important as what you were singing about what you were writing about how did you make sure that there there was that equal fair kind of marriage between the two i don't think that we kind of plan that or consider it too much we you know we started off playing live a long time ago and we were really having to find our feet as it were you know find a way to do it well live and we weren't necessarily natural performers front people mm. you know um we were quite unconventional in lots of ways in terms of how we looked on stage and things um but over the years we've got better at it but also we felt passionate about doing it and excited to be performing and when it comes to the kind of staging of the shows and well I'm kind of jumping around a little bit I feel very I feel very comfortable on stage now and always like like I said when I was describing performing that song when I was at school at the age of 13 or whatever 14 or something um you know there there's something about it that it's like yes this feels really good and where I'm meant to be um but then there then there's you know a few other things when we began doing hot chip that maybe we were not so well rehearsed or didn't, mm. didn't know exactly how to do certain things but in terms of the staging and the look of it and how to make it all work and marry with the music i mean it's we just try we just try to do what we think is going to look exciting and and fit with the mood of it but we don't always spend that long you know getting it we we've, we've <laughs> I feel like it's only recently on this latest album that we've actually staged things in a more theatrical way, made more of an effort visually. I mean, we've always had good lighting. Yeah. We've always cared cared about the music videos. Yes, always. But it was still just a band, a band on stage playing together. We didn't have, like, video screens and backdrops and things most of our career. Um, so if it came across as everything you just described about that Reykjavik gig um, or, you know, near to Reykjavik, um, (laughs) then I think that's that's the power of the playing of the music and the, you know, just watching musicians playing and and being lost in the moment. Like sometimes I'll come across old video footage of us from a few years ago and I'll think that does look, that does look exciting. You know, I think Sarah drumming, on stage was really good to to watch and enjoying herself and rhythmically propulsive drummer and you know it's like all all of us doing different things on stage and um we 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 think about i i guess we all really like clothing and and fashion and we like other people's really good stage shows like Grace Jones and Devo and you know we're inspired and craft work we're inspired by seeing those kind of different ways you can do things live but yeah like I say I sometimes felt like we weren't really making that, <laughs> yeah. that much of a coherent effort, effort. yeah um, um, like we were doing our best but we didn't have the money to have like anything more than just us on stage because we had seven people up there and all the amplifiers and vintage synths and everything that's what we'd spent our money on um not anything more kind of 
visually stimulating, right. but maybe it was enough because we were doing some good music and yeah. that's what people came to see. Exactly. You know? And you mentioned Devo and I feel like between your like dance moves and your work with Mechanic Synths, there's definitely a connection. I know that you also once used uh, Bougie Boy High as a side project and uh, that brilliant stage name. Yeah. Um, what, Mother, Mother Mark's Bow, which I thought was so great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm a huge, huge Devo fan as well. So I feel like recalling them when talking about performance is so important and craft work yeah. actually as well. Yeah. Well, when I was younger... Particularly me and Owen really liked Devo. And I think Owen put some Devo on a mixtape for me when I was at university and he was at a different university and he he posted the tape to me and it had all these different, mainly kind of new wave or post-punk records and pop records, like maxi 12-inch singles that he'd bought and then he made this mixtape for me. And I, I think Devo were on there and I really liked I can't get no satisfaction in their cover, um, and then I then I remember buying buying the second album. Um, I mean, I had the first one already, but I really liked the second one, "Duty Now for the Future," and uh, that track, "Timing X," which is an instrumental, um, was w- really exciting. Like about a minute and a half of strange sort of disco-y weird progressive music yeah that was that was very influential and then i used to watch a video i think it, i can't remember what it's called um but i used to have a videotape that was a devo kind of film you know like it was it was a like a bit of a fictional storyline interspersed with live footage um and the the look of them on stage was definitely inspiring and when we started playing, we would line up in a row, much like Devo would. Yeah. You know, I remember watching that video again and again and again, thinking they're like, they've got this kind of, they've got the punk sort of energy, but the music is not really so much like punk, like UK punk. It's more like weird sort of dancey music and propulsive and jerky and it's kind of ugly rhythmically but it's exciting and i just found it really really amazing to watch like that i think there was one clip where each one of them would step forward at, at a time right and yes, it was like they were confronting confronting the audience yeah yeah you do that too um, sometimes so yeah yeah <laughs> so so that that was that was an influence on 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 us deciding to line up at the front of the stage and be as near to the crowd as possible because we had seen that and found that exciting. But also every time we ever played a gig at the beginning of our career, we had to line up at the front because we were always the first band on and there were two more bands yes. and then the headliner. And so there was nowhere to put the equipment. <laughs> so we just set the equipment up along the front. Yeah. And then after a very long time, that, that became our thing that we did. And people were like, oh, you, you look like Kraftwerk. Yeah. Um, like oh yeah well that's yeah we like them but it was more more born out of a love for devo and uh and function yeah um i got to see devo in new york on the same day that we we mastered our album the warning which was the second one we mastered that in new york and i went i went over to attend the mastering session 
And then, uh, yeah, that evening after the album was mastered, I went on my own because nobody else had, had gone over there with me. I'd just gone out on my own. I went to see Devo, and that was really, really good to get to see them. Um, I I thought they were amazing. I, I, I do wish I had got to see them when I, when they were at the beginning of their mm. career, but I wasn't born then, so yeah. um, it would have been hard. Um, and how serendipitous to kind of watch them when you're what when you're mastering one of your own projects. I think that that's also really wonderful to have that connection between those two experiences as well. Because even though they feel that you know th- there's so much digit, there's so much, so many synths and so many things going on, but there's so much humanism to that their sound and the way that they perform. Weirdly, as you said, like there's all it's jittery and it's kind of ugly. But it's so real and so raw, um, which, yeah. which is what what why we connect to it. What was the first show then that you ever saw? What was the first concert you ever ever got to watch? The first one was Peter Gabriel. Oh wow! Um, Nineteen ninety-two. Oh my gosh! Uh, he he just released this album called Us, um, which was the long-awaited follow-up to the album so mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. um and i really liked his music just from hearing it as a child at home but then when so my dad had the so album with sledgehammer and don't give up and all those songs on it um then then i kind of forgot about him but by the time that 1992 came round, he released the next album us and i remember buying that in Tower Records or HMV maybe uh, oh, Tower I Records I think. HMV. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I would have been twelve, and it was like I already liked other people like Prince, but but this was like somebody else that that I felt like I was discovering this album for myself. You know, I right. wasn't. It wasn't like listening to it with my dad or with friends. It was more of a like a personal relationship to that album but then because my dad had liked Peter Gabriel in the 80s he took me to the concert um it was at a place called Earl's Court Arena yes. in West London yeah and I, I, um, I used to live nearby oh you did oh, yeah okay. right that's cool yeah it was it was like it was it was massive um as a venue we weren't very near to the front but he had a very theatrical impressive stage show um he had worked with a theater director called robert lepage i think and he had collaborated with him to put together this very kind of impressive staging of the concert so some of the time peter gabriel would be like in singing from within inside a red telephone box (laughs) yeah um and he would be, you know, the microphone would be hit, hit, hidden inside the yes. phone receiver. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd have a very long, like, ca- cable connecting him to somewhere else on stage, like a, a phone cable, I mean. And then Sinead O'Connor was singing oh on the album on two songs, and she and, and she guested with him on the two songs that she sang on on the album. So when she came out, that was, like, the first song in the set had her, and I was like, wow, this is amazing, because... I really liked her on the record, but also I really liked Nothing Compares to You, her cover of the Prince song. That was the first um, record I bought. So, oh, wow. um, 
And so that so that was exciting to 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 hear her with him. Um, and he did things that bands didn't really end up doing until a bit later. Like he back then he had one of those cameras which now they're called GoPro cameras. Yes. But back then I guess maybe that company hadn't been formed, Created, but he had one of yeah. those like on his head. So he you know, on the big screens you could see into his eyes and stuff while he was walking around on stage and like lots of different things that to be honest, like with Hot Chip we didn't decide to do something super theatrical and staged, but that happened to be the gig I saw. And uh yeah, it was really, really good and the next gig, I think, was Prince um, at Wembley Stadium, which was like Prince was my favourite artist, and by that point, I would have been buying three albums in a, four albums in a row, like the day they came out, like the Batman album, Graffiti Bridge, yes. Diamonds and Pearls, and then then the one he was touring at that point was the one with no name. It was just the symbol that he then went on to change his name to. But that gig was great, but it was it was hard to enjoy because I was just so far away from the stage. Wembley Stadium is too big really to to enjoy a gig. Yeah, you, know, you just at, end up hearing unless you're in the first yeah, few rows. Yeah. You just hear everybody so else's voices. I remember just feeling Yeah, yeah. And I had to stand on a chair to be able to hear yeah. anything and I couldn't really that, you know. But but those were the first two gigs I went to. And I feel like that's such a those are so important because you mentioned that that was the first album that you also got to to buy and that experience of listening to something at home versus of course being with the fans hearing it live watching it on stage those are two completely uh you know they're comparable but they're two completely different experiences and the fact that you got to do that so young and you still remember details. I love that detail of the fact that he used that camera because Tom York started using yeah. that camera. I remember in some of Tom Tom yeah. York's like early early performances as well, he would put the camera right by his his wonky eye, you know. And it's like everybody was yeah. just like yeah. melted in this in the audience because you feel, as you said, sometimes so far away from the band at big stadiums. And when you do that, you feel like yeah. you are hanging off the person's forehead. <laughs> it's such a um, strange, strange feeling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of me remembering the details, I, I think I probably have watched a little bit of it since the gig, like on, right, YouTube, on YouTube or, yes. you know, okay. or maybe a DVD. I think a DVD or back then it would have been a video came out of documenting that tour. So I got to like relive it a little bit, but it still was very, yeah, it was it was very powerful watching it for the first time being in being in the stadium. But um, so I, I've always liked quite big artists like that as well as more underground or or smaller artists. So I've over the years I went from watching things like that to watching lots of kind of British bands when I was an early teen, like the Charlatans and Oasis and, um, you know, Spiritualized and all different bands like that. And then also when I got into American kind of independent lo-fi songwriters like Will Oldham or Smog, 
Jim O'Rourke, you know, they would come over and play at the garage in, in London and I would always go regularly. That was like the venue that I would see every band in for a while. And most of these gigs, if not all of them, I went with Joe from Hot Chip. Yeah. Um, so I saw I saw big pop stars and I saw like, you know, more like slightly more underground, or not underground, but people playing in 200 capacity or smaller venues as well. And I, I just... I went to gigs more than I ever went clubbing. Uh, I didn't really go out and immerse myself in dance music culture. I went to lots of like reggae nights. There was a regular reggae night that I went to for a while. That was in a club, and that was like that was a bit like going to, you know, when people say because our band is so well known for like dance music yes. and things, they assume that we're just sort That's of in clubs all the time. Like, I think Joe was, mm. but I, but I wasn't really so much into clubbing back then I was more into like watching a live band and also we saw you know I'd go with my my dad and my brothers to the Royal Festival Hall somewhere a bit more like or the Barbican you know seated venues and watch Guru's Jazzmatazz you know Guru from Gangstar yes. did that series of records um, with with jazz musicians and things like that and go to like I remember going to the proms to hear some Frank Zappa yeah. and some Steve Wright. <laughs> so it was kind of quite interested in lots of different things and some probably pretty bad music too. I'm not just trying to name drop the good ones. Yeah. But, um, but, we, but, I, but I spent a lot of time like, like just just really absorbed and discovery. in records yeah. and gigs. And, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it was really very, very important and some of it, feels really fresh to me now you know I remember being in I remember buying Spiritualized's album Ladies and Gentlemen We're Floating in Space and then being at the concert the same evening and hearing it only having had the afternoon to listen to it after school right but then you get to hear it live and it's they it just played the whole album pretty much in order yeah but I don't remember feeling I don't remember feeling disappointed that I didn't know the material better I felt like I just really like focused on it for like an afternoon and then it was exciting to hear that live rendition of it. And it was, yeah, really, really, like you were saying, the live thing and the records are quite different from each other. It was very, very exciting to hear it transformed onto the stage. Yeah, and um, so important just to be able to go to shows and, as you mentioned, not just the good shows, just be kind of escaping to that. And it's, it's weird because you mentioned the charlatans. I had Tim on the show Last year when we first launched, he was one of my first guests and he yeah. was chatting also about how that gig culture is so it's so transformative for an artist because you're not only experiencing that music live as anyone would around you, but as a, an artist, you're taking in that discovery of it and you're taking it in as almost learning in a way, uh, whether you reflect yeah. on it, whether you act on it like you did with Devo, whether you learn the steps or learn anything from it, some sort of subconscious mind meld is happening where it's just seeping yeah. in. And that's yeah. always amazing to hear or to speak about. It's so fascinating. Um, and weirdly, that makes me think I, I, I stalked your Instagram the other day because I was like, oh, I'm going to speak to him. Let me yeah. look at your Instagram, which I like barely ever do. Yeah. But I looked and I saw there's some videos that you posted of uh, what I'm assuming is you and your, your child covering, uh, what was yeah. the one video? It was uh, Kanye's Bound. Um, 
And yeah. that was yeah. that was so so much fun to watch. I have to say, from from an outsider's perspective, because just I just think I'm sure that wasn't planned or rehearsed, but it just the the love of no, music it wasn't came across. That was, that was that was the yeah. I mean, we just uh, when I first heard that song, I don't. I have to admit, I don't like everything that he does. Right, but. I did. I did really too. like his first album when it came out, mm. and I yeah yeah exactly. Mm. But every now and again, he'll make something that I think is much more interesting than maybe it gets credit for. Like the one he made with Paul McCartney, where it's just oh, Paul McCartney yeah. playing the Wurlitzer and Kenny West singing. Yeah, that's something I really like, um, and I think it's quite sort of stylistically modern to do something which just uses an old-fashioned instrument, but the production values of the sound of the vocal, the sound of the backing vocals, when they cut through, are kind of extreme and loud and sharp and sort of modern-sounding. And it's quite brave to just take take away drums and bass and everything else and make a very empty track and make it a commercially successful song. I think it's really interesting. And then with the one bound that me and Prudence were singing at the piano. Um, the song sounds to me like it's made up of two quite unconnected pieces of music. One of them is the sample from the Ponderosa Twins track, which features the kind of bound lyrics, like a young... You know, like, I think he's... I think when... I don't know for sure, but I think that band was like, you know, young people performing so the singer's voice is very high because he's like only a teenager or or younger and so that's the main part of music you hear but then the chorus with charlie wilson singing which is not a sample but it's something that they did in the studio um and it has completely different production values it's like a noisy synth and a vocal and like not really anything else. Um, when that comes in, I just find the juxtaposition between those two sections of music really thrilling. And it's partly to do with the key change, the modulation from, from the sample that he's using from bound to this other bit. And they, they, they sound perfectly right. But when I sat down to work out what that change is on the piano, like what key it goes from, to which one it it doesn't sound to me like uh, a key change or a modulation I've ever heard in other pop songs Mm. and I feel like that happens because he's working with six different producers at once on (laughs) On a track and and he's like somebody's like yeah and somebody's like well what about if we had this sample Mm. in the something yeah that sounds good and you know what about if we did and and that ability to throw those things together can lead to really Magic. interesting mm. results. I mean, I don't I don't know if that's how it happened, but that's certainly what it sounds like. And I just think if you sit down on your own with a guitar and write a song, you're not likely to fi- make that, that chord progression that he yeah. made. Yeah. So I really love I love being inspired by those moments in pop music where you can be like, wow, that that is really unconventional but really exciting and really sort of direct it hits you and um so i just wanted to like i 
I was never going to cover the whole song and like learn any yes. rap because most of it is stuff I wouldn't really ever say. But I like the the singing part, so I just wanted to, yeah, I was just trying it out on my own. And I had a gig the next day, and I was thinking, oh, I wonder if I'm going to try and cover this song. And then my daughter came into the room, yeah, and. I realised at that point, well, she could probably sing the bit that the, the child sings yes, on the, the band high part. original song. Yeah. So yeah. So but she's got said, such a beautiful voice. Then, like it, it kind of blew me away oh, because there's you. a little, yeah. there's a hint at the end of it where, like, in the beginning, you could see she wasn't like maybe I don't know she hasn't maybe she doesn't know how good she is, but at the end, you could feel that she yeah, she yeah. she realised. Oh, hang on, I can make this note. And there was this beautiful, like, flutter. It went into two tones. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's really, that's something that I think, I, I don't know. I just I just wanted more. Maybe that was just me being, like, grossly selfish yeah. as an onlooker. Um, no, but no. I loved that. It no, was I think so cool. When I, when, I, when I posted it, um, I actually forgot that I posted it because I posted it like three days after I'd filmed it. And then I like looked at, when I next looked at Instagram, I had like all of these messages from people saying really nice things about it. So oh, good. I, I definitely connected with lo lo lots of people. It connected with people more than any of my other <laughs> So um, you're not the only person. Yeah, who, too who cool. <laughs> I mean, I like your other content, but you know, prudence, prudence is the one that's going <laughs> to, yeah. they're going to get the eyes. But I wanted to just touch on something that you said, which I found uh, quite thoughtful and insightful in terms of pop music and finding those notes that are unconventional. And obviously the origins yeah. of A Bath Full of Ecstasy, your new album, that that ties into writing music for a pop star, I believe. You know, beyond writing for another person, did you find yeah. yourself thinking differently in terms of that pop structure um, for somebody on that celebrity stage? Like when it came time to use songs that you originally conceived in those sessions was it kind of like a mind fuck to reinvent your own songs then to become back well you know become your own again? no not really there was enough of 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 us in the demos that we'd written to offer to Katy perry that when when we chose to use so one one song made it onto her album but the ones that didn't these two tracks that uh, one of them is called Spell and one is called Echo. Um, firstly, we changed them quite a lot from the demos, but the, the the kind of, particularly with Spell, the core of that song remains the same. It's just the chorus. I wrote a new set of chords and, and words for the chorus, but the verses remain much like what we presented to her. Okay. Um, to get it back To get it back to being something for us, didn't feel that difficult because when we were demoing it, I put my voice on the track and, you know, Joe produced it. It, it. We didn't really have that much experience for writing for somebody else at that point anyway. So maybe what we were doing was writing another hot chip song. Yeah. We just had <laughs> yeah. her, we heard, we had her in mind. The yeah. thing that was, the thing that was different was, I think it was quite freeing lyrically to be writing for her rather than, for us and about me. So I was trying to like imagine what she would feel comfortable singing or what would be 
the kind of mood she might want. So the words are a little bit... I, I think they're similar to Hot Chip, other songs, but they, they may be a little bit more playful with the idea of it being a kind of sensual, seductive song. Um, you know, because you try... Maybe it's quite freeing. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but just to imagine it's going to be somebody else performing it and singing it and being the front person to it. That's why a lot of those, those like classic Cole Porter songs or like all the songs that, you know, the other, that there were writers behind songs, but there were performers for the songs. You can say some really interesting and sophisticated things in, in that era of pop music, maybe because people are not having to put themselves on stage and be a front person, but they can just craft something that is about how people feel and then somebody else has to front it. I mean, I don't know if I've really expressed that particularly well, but you can kind of, yeah, you can sort of be hiding behind the scenes to some extent, but saying something very revealing and that you get that in lots of uh, early songwriting for Ella Fitzgerald or, you know, Billie Holiday or... um, Baker, all the kind of standards from that era. And I, I think that you also get it in the more modern pop music where it's Kathy Dennis or somebody writing the song for Kylie Minogue um, and maybe even singing on it and doing backing vocals and so on. There's, there's, there's a lot more of writer that goes into those things than maybe people would realise. So, um, yeah, I've ended up talking more about how it's fun to write for somebody else rather than how we turned it back <laughs> into our own track. But I just, I, I just thought, I thought they were really good songs and deserved to be finished. And, and I think also the timing was really good. So when Katy Perry asked us to work with her, me and Joe hadn't been working on any new hot chip right. music okay. at that point for a few good few months. So the studio time we put in together was like was fun because we'd all finished touring and had a break and then just me and joe got together to to start writing these tracks for Katy perry we were excited by that like a quite nice thing to be asked to do and we also were feeling the pressure so so we worked hard came up with eight songs like in two days or something because we thought well we better what if you know what if we turn up in the studio and she expects yeah quite a lot so we just really yeah so yeah, so I think that that meant that we put a lot of good work in ahead of the time, that way ahead of the time that we actually began on this Hot Chip album. But it was quite good because we did this thing for somebody else. Some of it didn't get used. And then you're like, oh, we've already, we've already got some good ideas. So that, that, that makes you feel comfortable beginning the rest of the album. Whereas I think if you're starting totally from scratch, you can sometimes feel a bit pressured. You know, what are we going to come up with yeah. now? Like we've done six albums already. What are have we, we got? Do? Have we got good mm. ideas for the seventh one? Mm. Yeah. And that's interesting, um, I suppose, because obviously working—it's not like it didn't come from the same place. You know, it's not like you—you be- just press a button and you're suddenly a different person writing different songs. I'm sure there's di- there's different layers of you as a writer that you can access for your different projects, which you do just listening to your, you know, solo work, the more stripped down work. Um, but it's still coming from the same vessel, you know, and going in with an agenda of knowing that it's for somebody else, I suppose it takes the pressure off slightly, uh, but I'm sure you are still, 
I'm sure you still put in the effort, but I can't believe you did that in two days. Is that is that a normal pace? Well, maybe it was three days. I can't remember now. Um, <laughs> They're the truth. It, no, it, I'm kidding. No, we, I'm joking. We, 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 did, we did work quickly and we worked hard. And I think that maybe it's unusual to have that many so quickly, but the, the way in which we've always worked on the beginnings of songs, so the demo stage, and it didn't used to be called the demo stage. It just was how we made all the records that were really demoing and then doing them again. They just were that. We wouldn't get a break from one song because we'd been on it for like all morning. So we we would start on another one and then we'd work on two and then maybe the third idea that Joe had just a beat for, but not more than that, we'd start on that. So you want two or three things simultaneously in one day, but you don't finish any of them and then come back to them the next day and try and get further with them. And uh, so, yeah, we, 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 I think we, we have been good at generating quite a lot. And I have to also take my hat off to Joe himself for often coming up with lots and lots of beginnings, lots and lots of, you know, ideas. I come up with lots too, but I think he works harder than anyone else I've ever met (laughs) in the music world in terms of just, making music every you know um so it reminds me of prince really in terms of work ethic i'm able to contribute to that you know help turn that into a song or whatever put words on it put keyboards on it write chords do things you know if it's just a bass line and a drum pattern we come up with a lot more together but sometimes joe's got a lot more than that on his own so it's uh yeah Obviously, sometimes I turn up and I've got songs I've written at home and just say, I want to try this out. And, you know, it, it's, uh, we like to work quickly. And I don't also really like to work on one song for like six weeks, Too if I can long. help it. Yeah. Um, get quite, get quite bored quickly. So try to move on. Is there anything about being a, uh, professional artist or professional musician as such that you didn't expect when you first started out? It's quite a privileged position to be in sometimes. People give you clothes and that's quite weird to be given things. Yes. It's nice. Um, I'm not complaining. Um, it's quite strange. I don't think it's peculiar to music. I think it's in lots of entertainment industries, but it's quite strange sometimes to think, the people that can afford to buy things are being given them for free. And the people that can't afford to yeah, buy things just buying, are, look, to... Are, look, are, are looking at the people wearing yeah. them <laughs> and then wanting to buy them or something. You know. Capitalism! Um, but yeah. I remember early on in my career being quite fascinated by the behind-the-scenes industry of it, like going to a mastering studio and how many rooms of people were there all working on mixing or mastering records and taking seriously an industry that I'd always cared about, loved, you know, I hadn't cared about the industry. I loved the records that people put out, but then seeing the wind, like getting to see behind the scenes and seeing the sort of seriousness with which people took it. I found that quite inspiring, you know, because sometimes music can be seen as merely entertainment and 
a kind of footprint. And so I, I, I enjoyed meeting people, seeing people working hard on it, and also meeting people in the industry who really were passionate about records and, you know, just all of that. This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and The Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and The Consequence Podcast Network where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. listened this far why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too for information on new episodes be sure to follow us on facebook twitter or instagram at tmbtg pod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show thanks again and i miss you already again for listening here's a last minute reminder that StubHub is the best place to score the tickets you need whenever you need them backed by their 100% fan protect guarantee StubHub has the seats you want at the price you want to pay and they're never sold out so you can score tickets up to the last minute head to StubHub.com now and enjoy the show Consequence Podcast Network.